Good to be uh, in a time of, of God's Word together. And let's open up our Bibles, if you would, to the book of 1 Peter. We are starting chapter 4 together. Some of you have been with us since chapter 1. Some of you jumped in in chapter 2, some in chapter 3. Now all of us together in chapter 4. I make no promises of when we will finish chapter 4 or the end of the book, nor what we will study after that. But for this morning, we'll be in the first six verses of chapter 4. And let's just start by reading it together. First Peter chapter 4 says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the, flesh, for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensualities, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. One of the great truths of the Bible is the transformation of the heart. In fact, it is the greatest miracle within each life of the believer. When someone goes from darkness into light, when God by his spirit, transforms a hard heart and makes it soft towards the things of the Lord. And a life that is once characterized by the bondage of sin is now characterized by freedom in Christ and obedience to him. John Stott says this about the Christian. He says, each person, each Christian has two chapters in their life. Chapter one is the previous life without Christ, without believing in his son, Jesus Christ, where you are dead in your trespasses and sin. And chapter two is a life that has been transformed by the gospel in which you live now in obedience to him. Two chapters in your life. There's chapter one and there's chapter two. And just by way of introduction, I want to remind you of this. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter six. Romans chapter 6, just to introduce what we're getting into here in 1 Peter 4, I, I think this will be helpful to us. In Romans chapter 6, it says this in verse 1, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, by, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, there it is, we too might walk in newness of life. There's a newness of life that each believer walks in. No longer in the old life, but in the new life. Look over with me, if you would, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It speaks of it again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 16, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. It says this, From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. 
even though we lit, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling to the world himself. What is he talking about? He's talking about an old life and a new life. He's talking about chapter one and chapter two. You once lived a certain way. You, you once had desires for the world and passions for the world in a former life that you once had, but your, your heart has been transformed and now you have new passions. You have a new life. There is newness of life. You have a life that's now marked by the Holy Spirit who, who guides and governs your life. Now, if you would, go back into 1 Peter with me. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 2, it says this. It says that, that you have lived a life that, that, that has ceased from sin. Verse 2 says this, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You live your life no longer for the world in this previous life, but you now live for the will of God. You live your life for God and not for the world. And, and if you set this passage then, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, in the context of 1 Peter, we understand this, that he's talking about living for God in the midst of persecution, in the midst of hardship. How do you live out chapter 2 of your life in the midst of great suffering and persecution? That's what Peter wants us to know. That's what Peter wants his readers to understand, is that you are to live your life no longer in your former life and passions and sins of the world, but you are to live your life in newness of life for God, for Christ, in the midst of severe suffering and hardship and persecution. How am I to do that? How do I live out the will of God in the midst of hardship? tells us in verse 4 that of this, of 1 Peter 4, 4, it tells us that with respect to this, this newness of life and this, this life that you now live that is not for the world, in this life with respect to this, they're surprised. Who's surprised? The world is surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and so they malign you, and so they persecute you. Why are they persecuting you? Because you don't do the sins that they do. You don't live your life the way the world lives their life. And so they're mad at you. They hate you. They don't understand why, they don't, why, why you don't join in with them to participate in the sins of your former life. And so the question that is answered here is this, is that Peter wants you to know how to live your life for God in the midst of difficult persecution and suffering. And he gives us four ways to do that. Four ways to be prepared to live for God in the midst of persecution. And number one is this. If you're going to live your life for God in the midst of persecution, you must, number one, be armed with the mind of Christ. 
Be armed with the mind of Christ. Look what it says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What Peter does, first of all, you see those two words, since therefore, he's drawing us back, all the way back to verse 18, where he, where he first talks about us suffering with Christ. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered. Chapter 4, verse 1, since therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. Look at uh, chapter 4 in, in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. If we're going to live for God in the midst of, of persecution, then we must have an example. And the example that Peter gives us to and draws us back to is the suffering of Jesus Christ. He draws in everything that we learned from verses 18 to 22, which was about the suffering of Jesus Christ. And through the suffering of Jesus Christ, it paved the way to glory. He explained to us, if you look in verse 18, that, that through Christ's suffering, through Christ's death, he died once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, putting, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He's talking about the fact that we have died with Christ and we have ra been raised with Christ, and therefore we find our identity with Christ in all things. He's saying that Christ has suffered in the flesh, and we're identified with Christ in that suffering, because we have died with Christ. We've been raised to life through Christ, and the most severe, the most severe suffering that Christ endured was that at the cross where he defeated death. It was at the cross where, where Christ defeated Satan. It was at the cross where, where Christ uh, was a, uh, announced victory over the demons. And it was, at the Christ where, it was at the cross where Christ triumphed over hell. And all of Christ's most painful sufferings led to his death, but through that death, it ushered in the greatest triumph and the greatest victory. And it's found in verse 22, uh, where, where, where Christ has gone into heaven and he's at the right hand of God. And so he says, look to Christ. Remember the sufferings of Christ. Remember the death of Christ when you are persecuted. That Christ has done this Christ has gone through this, and it has led to triumph. It has led to glory. The pathway of victory for Christ was through his suffering, and the pathway of triumph for the believer is through suffering. And he says, look to the example of Christ, and then he says this, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Arm yourself, then, with the same way of thinking about suffering as Christ has. That word arm yourself there is a, a military connotation to it. Being ready for battle. It's compared with a life of war. If you remember in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, it deals with there the, the armor of God that you're to place on your body. 
the spiritual armor that you, you clothe yourself with. In Ephesians 6.11, it says this, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. It's the same idea where you put on the same thinking, you arm yourself with the same thinking that Christ has about suffering. So the question then is this, how did Christ view suffering? Christ viewed suffering in this way. He said it like this, blessed are those who suffer for righteousness sake. The way Christ viewed suffering was this way, was that he was willing to suffer for the truth. He was willing to suffer for the gospel. He was willing to suffer for righteousness sake. He was even willing to suffer to the point of death on the cross. This was the attitude that Jesus had about suffering. He was ready and he was willing to suffer no matter if it meant death. That was the thinking that Jesus had about suffering. Jesus was willing to suffer to the point of death. He was willing to suffer to the point of death because he knew this, that through death would come victory. He knew this, that suffering to the point of death on the cross would bring the greatest glory to God the Father. And so Jesus, his mindset about being persecuted in this world, his mindset about suffering in this world was one where he was willing to say, it's worth it. It's worth it to suffer for righteousness sake. Even if it meant death. Jesus didn't have a fear of death. Jesus didn't fear death at all. In fact, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28. He says this, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Listen, when there's no more fear of death in your life, then you're willing to suffer for righteousness sake. When you're willing to say, hey, I'm going to have the mind of Christ, which was, hey, if they kill me, they kill me. I'm ready to be persecuted for the gospel. I'm, I'm willing to suffer for the gospel. And at the end, if that means death, then, then that means life in heaven with Christ. And when you have no more fear of man and you have a healthy fear of God, then you're willing to suffer for righteousness sake and you have the mind of Christ. And you're willing to stand and with boldness and courage in the face of opposition. And to say to live is Christ and to die is gain. You're ready to take on any persecution the world has. Any suffering that the world has. Because when you're willing to die for the cause of Christ, then you have armed yourself with the same mind that Christ had when he went to the cross. Death will be gain. Death will usher in glory. Why don't you look at this verse with me in 2 Corinthians. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
it speaks to this, I think, very clearly about us living for Christ in this world and having the same mind as Christ about persecution. It was the mind that even the Apostle Paul had. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, it says this, but we, chapter 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. For we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. There it is, talking about the suffering. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who, who, who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal bodies. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Look at verse 16. So we do not lose heart. We do not get discouraged in the face of persecution. We don't get discouraged in the face of suffering. Why? Because the life of Christ is being manifest through us when we suffer. So we don't lose heart. Instead, what it says, though our outer self is being wasted away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction. Light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We don't get discouraged, church, in the face of persecution. We don't shrivel up in a ball and go hide in our houses in the face of persecution. We don't stop sharing the gospel because people don't like us. We don't lose heart in this way because Christ is manifesting himself through our life when others don't like what we're saying. And if that means more suffering, so be it. If that means it takes us to the point of death, then I understand this, that I have the same mind of Christ then when it comes to being persecuted. I have the same mind of Christ when it comes to suffering for the sake of the gospel. And I don't fear man. I fear God. And therefore, I'm going to live out the gospel in, this, in the midst of persecution, knowing that it is Christ who is on display in my life. And so we must arm ourselves every day with this mindset. It must be our thinking every day when we wake up that I am willing to suffer for the sake of righteousness today. Secondly is this, to be ready to live for God in the midst of persecution is this, remember that you've been set free from a life of sin. Remember that you have been set free from a life of sin. Look what it says there, it says, forever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Some translators say this way, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, what is he doing? He, uh, Peter is illustrating for us that through the suffering of Christ, we are freed from sin. That believers are freed from sin because of Christ's death on the cross, Christ's suffering. 
that he bore the sins of many, as it says in verse 18. In chapter 2, 22, it, it says this, or, uh, or 2, 24, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What he is saying this is that as we understand our identity in Christ, that we have died with Christ and we now live to righteousness, as we understand that union with Christ, then we know this, that we have been, been broken away or we have ceased from the power and penalty of sin in our life. That is no longer what identifies us. We have been raised to a new life. We have broken away from that life. We have been risen to new life in Christ, a, a newness of life. We've been set free from sin. Better translation there, instead of cease from sin, is it has the idea of, of breaking away from sin, meaning this, that you are not the same person that you were before you were saved. You're not that same person. Because of your identity in Christ, because Christ has died and he has risen and you identify in his death and his burial and his resurrection, you have, uh, you have risen to new life in Christ or you have broken away from the old patterns of sin in your life. And the result of that then, as you look at verse 2, the result of that is that you live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What does Peter want you to do? He wants you to remember the gospel in the midst of persecution. That when you're being persecuted, you don't run to your old life. In the midst of hardship and suffering, you don't find that crutch, that sin to lean on in your old life, the, those passions that you would lean on to find comfort in the midst of suffering. He's saying, don't go there. You've broken away from that lifestyle. By the grace of God in your life, that is not who you are anymore. He's saying, don't live the rest of your time in the flesh. Don't live for the passions, the human passions of the flesh anymore. But he says there, but for the will of God. And then he lists off there these sins that the Gentiles were doing that defined who they are. The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The time in your life has stopped living for these passions and sensualities that your former life wanted you to be held captive to. The time for that has ended. What were these things that the Gentiles would do? Look, it says, it says what the Gentiles want to do. What do they want to do? They want to live in sensualities. What are these sensualities that he's talking about? He's talking about someone who does whatever they want to do in this life. Someone who has no self-control. Someone who has no discipline in their life. Someone who wants full control of their life, even if it means succumbing to temptation over and over and over again. There's no submission to authority. There's no submission to Christ. 
There's no regard to obedience to the Lord, complete disregard, multiple acts of lust and lawlessness, a life filled here with, with uh, in, in this section here, he's talking about life that is filled with, with pornography, a life with no restraint. He goes on to talk about lusts and passions, which is mindless indulgence, not even thinking of the consequence, not even thinking of the danger of it, passionate for this sin, passionate for sinful things. This is the life of a Gentile. He's talking about drunkenness. Literally, it talks about wine bubbling over, drinking to get drunk, drinking for the purpose of getting drunk. He's saying this defines the world. Orgies, sexually driven parties, drinking parties, again, for the whole purpose of getting drunk, being intoxicated, and lawless idolatry, the worship of idols, the worship of things here in this world. He's saying this is what the Gentiles want to do. This is their life. This is their passion. This is what they love. And he says, you, you identify with Christ. You identify in his death. You have died to those sins. You have broken away from those sins. You have been raised to a newness of life. Don't run back to that lifestyle. That's not how you handle persecution. You don't run back to those things. You've broken away from it, Christian. You've been raised to newness of life. That's not who you are. Live in obedience to God now. Peter's saying this is what defines the world. This is what defined your formal life. This is not characteristic of a believer. You've died to the world. You've died to those pleasures. You've died to the passions of the world. You cease from those sins because of the suffering Savior and the sin of the world that he died for. This is no longer your way of life. Live the rest of your time here on earth for the will of God. Live for the Lord. You once desired those things. You once lived your life for those things. But no longer. Why don't you look over with me in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. If you would, turn over, to, over there. It's a few pages to the left in your Bible. In verse 3 it says this. It says, for we ourselves were once foolish. For we ourselves were once disobedient. For we ourselves were once led astray. For we were once slaves to various passions and pleasures. And we are passing our days in malice and envy. And we are hated by others and hating one another. What is he talking about? He's talking about this former life that people were passionate about. You once were these things. Then what does it say? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. 
He saved us from this life. This former life, he saved us from it. And it wasn't because of works done in righteousness. It wasn't because of anything you did. It wasn't because you were smarter than anybody else. It wasn't because all of a sudden you had an aha moment and you figured it out. No, he saved you in spite of the fact that you were running and indulging in this lifestyle. It was all because of God. He saved you out of that. And he washed your heart with the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out richly, what? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And you say, I, I don't really have a life like that. I, I never had a life like that. I, I, I grew up in a Christian home. That was never what it was. Well, listen, by the grace of God, you never had a life like that, but you would have had a life like that. That was the path you were on. You were running with everybody else. And he saved you out of that before you indulged on the thinking of your mind that would have produced sin eventually in your life. He, he saved you and rescued you before you had an opportunity to do that. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11, it says very similar language. If you would look over there, it's worth noting and worth turning to. In verse 9, Second Corinthians or First Corinthians, sorry, First Corinthians six and verse verse nine says, "Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God." Verse eleven. And such what were some of you? Such were some of you, but what? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This was once your lifestyle. It is no longer who you are. You've been washed and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and live now in the newness of life. And we need to understand this, church. We need to understand this, Christian, that Jesus Christ died for the very sins that you keep running back to. That Christ hates those sins that we keep running back to. And we, and we, we feel like those are the only things that's going to soothe our heart and comfort our heart. And we go back to those sins, the very thing that Christ hates. And that was once your life. It's no longer it. We forget how much Christ hates this sin. We, we forget that our, uh, that our Savior died for these very sins, that, that He has set you free from sin's power and presence and penalty. We've forgotten those things. And persecution comes in our life, and what do we do? We make a beeline back to that sin. That's not who you are. We need to remember and have the mind of Christ here. We need to remember the gospel here. When we get persecuted and suffering comes in our life, we make a beeline back to the cross and say, God, I don't deserve what I have. God, thank you for salvation. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that I'm not any longer held captive to this sin. And you run back to the cross of Jesus Christ to find comfort and grace and healing for your soul. This is what Peter wants us to do. 
He wants us to know very clearly that we've got a new life in Christ. That the time for living in the flesh is no longer. That those days, I've had enough of those days. They're they're no longer. And you're going to get persecuted for it. And you're going to get maligned for it. But don't go running back to those sins. Number three is this. Because of that, because of that, verse 4, with respect to this, they're surprised when you not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Number three, be ready for persecution. Be ready for persecution. Because you are choosing to set set apart your life unto holiness, because you're choosing not to go back into that lifestyle, be prepared that they will malign you. They will criticize you. They will defame you. They will verbally abuse you. I don't know, for some of you, it's true on Monday mornings, you go to work and you just know it's going to happen. You just know it. You know, for some of you, you're going to go to Thanksgiving dinner with unsaved family. And you're probably going to get made fun of in some regard because of it. And you're not looking forward to Thanksgiving dinner or lunch or brunch with unsaved family because you know that persecution is going to come. For some of you in your own family, you feel the persecution. With friends, you feel the persecution. And we need to know this, that we shouldn't be surprised by this. We shouldn't be surprised when people don't like the fact that we're pursuing holiness and they're pursuing sin. We shouldn't be surprised that a life that isn't transformed by the gospel hates a life that is transformed by the gospel. And the reason we shouldn't be surprised by this is because of what Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 18 and 19. It says this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, chapter 1, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, chapter 2, this life, transformed life, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Because you've got a transformed life, this is... This is expected. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 10 to 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we have to remember that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of persecution that comes in our life, because we're standing for the gospel, we shouldn't just expect, expect others to go, oh, yeah, I'll, yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah, I'm going I'm to join in and not, not continue in the sin that I love, because you're not. No, they're, they're going to malign you for that. They're going to be surprised. Say, what's going on? We used to always do this together. We've been doing this for years. Why now? Or have you decided not to? You're saying, because I don't live in my former life anymore. I live for the will of God now. 
that, that was an old life. I, I don't pursue that anymore. I, I, but you used to always do that. No, not anymore. Not anymore. I'm going to live the rest of my life here on earth for the will of God now. Number four is this. Number four, remember that judgment comes to the unbeliever and life for the believer. Judgment comes to the unbeliever and life comes for the believer. Look what it says at the end of there or at the beginning of verse five, but they will give an account who those who persecute you will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Second Timothy 4 1 reminds us that it is Christ who judge who is the judge. It says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead. Acts 10:42, and he commanded us to preach to the people to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying this. The point of this is that believers should not succumb to the temptations and the sins of the world or renounce their faith in order to enjoy the approval of society. Don't join in the sins of others just for the approval of men. It is short-lived, and those who mistreat believers now will be judged in the future. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Judgment is coming for those who malign you. Judgment is coming for those who persecute you. And we live encouraged by the fact that God is sovereignly in control and that he will deal with sin when he is ready to deal with sin. In the meantime, what do we do? We continue to live for Christ and we persevere. Judgment is coming for those who persecute, those who malign. Therefore, don't align yourself with sinners. Don't align yourself with the culture to escape discrimination. Don't align yourself with the culture to escape persecution. Judgment is coming for the unbeliever. And life with God is coming for the believer. That's what it says. Look at the end of verse 6. For this is why the gospel is preached to even those who are dead. What is he talking about? He's even talking about those who heard the gospel before they died, believers before they died. The gospel is preached to even them, that though judged in the flesh, uh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. All who believe in Jesus Christ and their Savior and Lord will live in the spirit the way God does. Those who do not and they malign and persecute and reject Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord will be judged on the final day. And Christian, be encouraged by that. Be encouraged to stand your ground. Be encouraged to live for Christ in the midst of hardship. So how do we prepare to live for God in persecution? Number one, arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Number two, remember your past life of sin, that you've been broken away from it. Number three, be prepared to be persecuted. Number four, remember that judgment is coming to the unbeliever and life with God for the believer. Well, this morning we have an opportunity, and I think this is a great, uh, a great thing to take communion this morning in light of the things that we just heard. I'm going to ask Pastor Shea to come up and lead us through a time of communion, and he'll pray for us. And Jonah can come up, and we'll, we'll transition into a time of communion, an opportunity to reflect on these things. Thanks, Pastor Joe. 
Great reminder. Wonderful truths from God's word, right? As we consider our lives in the midst of persecution. Well, as Joe said, we do have the opportunity to take communion today, which we do about once a month. And I thought um, this morning I'd remind you that um, communion is the proclamation of Christ's death. And it is for us a visible sermon. It's a visible sermon. It's, it's the gospel in tangible form. Um, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, Paul writes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a proclamation of the death of Christ. It's so strong is that statement that one pastor, he said, Let no one here today in life and death ever claim that you've not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there we, we see it, right? It's salvation in the present for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. It's salvation in the past. You proclaim the Lord's death and then salvation in the future until he comes, all there in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Well, um, obviously, uh, communion is a wonderful opportunity ordinance of the church. And uh, the Bible in 1 Corinthians 11 also says this. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner uh, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cu- drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So our call there is to make sure that we examine ourselves this morning as we come um, to these elements as well. If you're not in Christ, if you haven't put your faith and trust, you can just let these go by. No one's going to uh, think you're weird or, or or look at you or make you feel awkward. Just let those go by. But if you are in Christ, this is an opportunity for us to examine ourselves, right? Recognizing the gravity of our sin and the weight of Christ's glorious uh, sacrifice. So maybe we'll just take a second, maybe just one uh, 30 seconds here and, and, and have an opportunity just to pray and examine ourselves. Um, and then we'll call them in forward in just a second. I'm going to ask the men to come forward, and I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, so grateful for the body and blood of Christ. I pray even now, as you prepare to take these elements, God, that you would work in us. God, that you would remind us of the cost that was paid for our sin. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.